Now that was awesome. You've never sung "Great Is Thy Faithfulness" like that. That's you didn't sing, have never sung those words before. Uh, John Piper wrote those middle verses just a few weeks ago, um, and when he was preaching at a uh, a women's conference, and uh, he said the text didn't, the hymn didn't work for his sermon, so he rewrote some verses. And I heard it on the YouTube uh, last week, and I shared it with Jonathan. I said, "Can you do that?" He put it together for this week, but that's. Um, so that's, that's contemporary. I mean, it was just written a few weeks ago, uh, and uh, we're already singing it, but uh, our God is good, he's great, he's faithful. I'm continuing my series on uh, attributes of God, and I want us to think this morning about our life-changing God. Uh, you're familiar with the song Amazing Grace. The writer of Amazing Grace is John Newton. Now, John Newton wrote a great hymn. Amazing Grace, probably, it's probably, I would say it's the number one song both non-Christians and Christians know, uh, is Amazing Grace. God did a lot of stuff through John Newton, but he also wrote an epitaph. He wrote his, his tombstone. I, mean, I don't know, how, how many people have already written what you want on your tombstone? I don't see any hands. I don't plan to do that. I mean, that's just, just not done too much. But John Newton wanted to do that. John Calvin said he didn't even want a tombstone. He wanted an unmarked grave because he thought people would idolize him after he was gone. He didn't want to be spoken about. John Newton wanted a tombstone, and he wanted to write an epitaph. He wanted to put something on it because John Newton wanted to keep preaching through his tombstone. So this is what's on it. You can go to England and see it still today. John Newton, clerk. Once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Now stop and think about the life change that he's describing in this one sentence, it forced me to want to, to dig in and find out a little bit more about this man. He ran away from home at age 11. He was a wild, rebellious child, a big guy, could make it on his own. At 11 years old, he jumped on a ship and said, I'll just be the ship hand, do whatever you want. And he got on the ship so he could be drunk, he could party. He says, he says I ran away to sin my field. Can you imagine that? 11 years old. Hopped from ship to ship, serving. Eventually got on a ship, got with a crew of people who were selling slaves. So he says, I became a servant of slave traders. That's how low my life had become. He eventually decided he wanted to leave Africa and the slave trade. He hopped a boat to England, and on that ride to England, Storm came up, knocked the boat off course. They all thought they would drown. As a servant, he goes into the bottom of these old boats in the 1800s, and he's pumping water somehow, village pump, trying to, as the water was, the waves, you know, coming over the ship, and you're pumping, trying to pump it faster than God's putting it in. And he says he was just there pumping and pumping and pumping for three days. All he did was pump water out of this boat thinking he was going to die, and it was at that moment, those, those days, that he said, you know, I, I should die here. 
my life is miserable, that he remembered a few scriptures he had been taught as a child. And that's where God changed his life. So you see the tombstone. He says, I was preserved. I was this clerk. I was an infidel. I was a libertine. I was preserved. I should have died, but God preserved me. He restored me to a place of significance. And then he pardoned me from all my sin. And then he appointed me to preach about Jesus. And I had been trying to destroy every thought of Jesus that was coming into my life. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. My favorite quote from John Newton is not that one, Amazing Grace. He preached. He went on to become a preacher. He was a great evangelical preacher. He preached to the age of 82. I like that. Pray for me. God would give me physical strength and ability. I like that sound of 82. If I die at 82... Patty would still get life insurance. I got a plan that goes that far. So that would be good. Uh, But anyway, he was preaching, you know, when you get that old, sometimes you can't remember what you're here for. And uh, the older you get, you know, the more you think about the hereafter. You know, what am I here after? But anyway, y'all are slow this morning. Come on with me. Uh, John Newton was losing his memory. The whole congregation knew it. Uh, I guess it was Alzheimer's at 82, and he got up to preach one Sunday, and it was just clear he's fumbling, couldn't remember what he's supposed to say. And so he just stopped and says, let me just say the obvious. My memory is almost gone. This is my favorite quote. He says, but I can remember two things. I remember, number one, I am a great sinner. And number two, I remember Jesus is a great Savior. Isn't that cool? That's all we got to know. I'm a great sinner, but it's all right, because I have a great Savior, and that is Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, I told you my story, how God changed me, how he saved me, some of my life before conversion, my conversion experience to Christ away from sin, my change, some of the change that's happened afterwards. The theology of all of that is in Ephesians 2, and that's what I want us to look at this morning, how God changes lives. So let's look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. It's a, it's, it's, our, our God's a life-changing God. He takes sinners, takes them to saints. That's what he did with John Newton. That's what he's done with me. That's what he's done with many of you. Think about God's life-changing work. First of all, let's look at this condition of ours before Christ, verses 1 through 3, Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and uh, of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Now stop and think about that for a minute. He's describing us before we come to Christ. Verse 4, we start 
getting in Christ. But the first three verses, we don't know Christ as our Savior yet. And he says, we're dead in trespasses and sins. And then he uses a powerful, some, several powerful words, verse 2 and 3. So we got a dead person in verse 1. In verse 2, they're walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan. Verse 3, we're living in the lust of our flesh, indulging both physical pleasures and mental pleasures. So that's how we lust. So you got a dead person who's walking and living. Obviously, we're not talking about physical death here. We're talking about a spiritual death. That we're, we're dead, but yet still walking about. We're still living in lust. Have you ever seen somebody on a Sunday afternoon take a nap, you know, lay back on the couch, open their mouth, and just start snoring? Have you ever played with that person a little bit? You know, kind of put your, wave your hand in front of their face, talk about them, you know, joke about them. Yeah. And what do we say? I don't know what y'all say. This is a phrase we use in our family. That person is dead to the world. Do y'all, y'all use that? You understand what we're talking about? The person is very much alive. We hear them breathing. We hear them snoring. But we say they are dead to the world. We can, we can walk, we can talk, we can make noise around them. They don't seem to know any of it's going on. In the same way, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're walking in them. We're living in them. God is walking and talking around us, speaking to us, preaching to us, things God is doing around us, but we don't have any of it. We don't hear it. We don't acknowledge it. All we do is sleep and breathe and snore in sin. We're we're immersed in a state that is apart from God. That's why we have neighbors, we have friends, we have children that are living in this condition. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They, well, so that's the condition. Think about this, this living. Uh, verse 2 describes, there's, a, there's a, another God. His name is the devil. His name is Satan. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's, he's this God that's influencing people. Some people say, oh, well, if I'm under him, the devil made me do it. No, 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 no. That's not what it says. He has this influence. He's, he's, this, he's, he's this prince. He's constantly, yes, tempting you. But you're the one walking in sin. You're the one living in lust. He didn't make you do it. He tempts you to do it, and you fully want to do it. You're engaged in this sinful behavior, whatever it is, uh, and it's very consistent with Satan, who is a rebel, who is disobedient, who does not follow God's law, who never exalts God, who doesn't praise God. You're consistent with that. You're a disciple of the devil as opposed to a disciple of Christ. Um, the devil's the one making the influence or the difference in your life. It's not Christ. Um, your concern is for pleasure. Mentions both physical pleasure, desires of the flesh, physically, and of the mind. So we want to physically and mentally lust after things that will please us. And then he goes to our doom. He says, and by nature, we're children of wrath. 
even as the rest. I mean, everybody's in this camp. You are a child of disobedience. That's your nature. You do this naturally. Um, this is what you were born into, to say it a different way. This disobedience. Look at John three, thirty-six. Here's a clear passage where Jesus describes this nature. John chapter 3, verse 36. says, He who uh, believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's by nature. Uh, do you obey the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know his commands? Do you keep his commands? Is that the focus? Is that what you wake up to do? God says, if, if that's not who you are, an obedient person to Christ, says the wrath of God is just on you. You're doomed. God is angry with you every day. And those who remain in that condition are cast into the pits of hell. That's not what we typically think about in our society. We think, you know, you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you, you make something out of yourself, you become a good person, you strive for, for wealth and fame, you achieve a certain measure, and you think you're okay. But remember the, the rich man and, and Lazarus in Luke 16? Very clearly tells us that the rich man goes to hell. And the poor man, poor homeless man, goes to heaven. See, that's not the way we think about it. That's why Jesus gave that illustration, I think. We think, you know, the rich man could have anything he wants. And it's always troubled me, this phrase, it's hard for a rich man to enter into heaven. Now, put that thought with Ephesians 2 for a minute. What is the condition of those going to hell? They are lusting after physical pleasure and mental pleasures. What can a rich person do? A rich person can afford to fulfill his lust. And how does that describe us? I don't know anybody in this room who can't afford to fulfill physical and mental lust. That puts us in that rich man category. I can afford this. I can pursue pleasure today, physically and mentally. And that's what the rich man did. He, he, he lived in the lust of his flesh and of his mind. And he ends up in hell. The poor homeless man who couldn't afford anything, not even physical pleasure, couldn't get it, God takes to heaven. So as you think through, what condition do I need to be in to be doomed to hell? It's this condition of lusting. Living for ourselves, not for God. Now, there's good news. That's, I mean, that's dreadful news. That's the condition of every one of us. That's what we're born into until Christ. Let's get to the good stuff. Ephesians 2, verse 4. If you're in that condition, I encourage you right now, it's time to turn from your sins and embrace Christ. You're, you're only hope. Look at verse 4. God, chapter 2 of Ephesians, but God rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead. See, he understands our condition. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, 
you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. Such good news. God, knowing that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, is willing to come to a dead man, make that dead man live, make us alive together. How does he do that? By joining us with Christ who is the resurrection, who is the way, the truth, the life. So through uniting us with Christ makes us alive. And this aliveness, stay with the context, see, it's a spiritual aliveness. Now when we, we hear God talking, now we see God walking about, now we're not dead to, to that. He makes us alive together with Christ. And he not only does that, he says that he raises us and already seats us with him in heavenly places. He makes us a heavenly citizen. I have a citizenship. This world's not my home anymore. My citizenship has been transferred to heaven to live with Christ forever. So that when I die, I do not go to hell because that's not my my place of abode. That's not where my citizenship dwells anymore. I've been transferred from hell to heaven through being made alive together with Christ. What awesome news that God wants to do for us. And how does it happen? It happens by grace. All of it happens by grace alone. Now, you've, you may have heard this good news, that good news is the definition of the word gospel. A lot of times we use the word gospel, and I wonder how many people understand the definition. But the gospel means the good news. And when we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the good news of Christ. And we're talking about God changing lives through Christ. That's good news, and that's exactly what he does here. Now, you might have heard it preached differently. The way I used to hear it preached was, uh, you're sick. And you have a terminal illness. And it's progressed. And now you're in the hospital. And you're literally laying on your deathbed. Jesus comes into the hospital room. He has life-giving medicine. And he wants to give you this medicine because you're terminally ill. But this medicine will cure you. All you've got to do is open your mouth. He's pouring the medicine in the spoon and he's sticking it towards you. And all you got to do is open your mouth and take the medicine and you will be cured and go and live with him eternally in heaven. Well, the passage says you're dead. It doesn't say you're terminally ill. It doesn't say you're sick. It doesn't say you're in a hospital bed. It says you are dead. What can a dead person do? And I've also heard it preached that you're like a drowning man, and you're in the ocean, and the storm has come up, and you've been swimming and swimming and swimming, trying to reach those heavenly shores. But you're exhausted, and you're tired. You've gone down once. You've gone down twice. And you're going down for the third time. And you're, you're trying to reach heaven. You're trying to reach the top and breathe. And only your fingers are sticking up over the water. And the good news is that Jesus 
throws you a life rope. And all you got to do is that. And he pulls you safely to shore. And you get to live with him forever. Again, see, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say you're exhausted in sin and you're going down for the last time. It says you are dead in your sin. You're not only going down, you're already at the bottom of the ocean. And you don't just have on concrete boots. You've been encased in concrete and chained to the bottom. And there's absolutely no hope you will ever breathe again when Christ comes into the waters busts the concrete, pulls up the chains, lifts you up, and breathes new life into your soul. That's salvation. That's what Christ does. You're not just sick. You're dead. You're locked up in the morgue. You're six feet under when Christ comes and gives life. Praise God. That's conversion. That's why we see great is his faithfulness. Because he changes us when we can absolutely do nothing. We can't do that much. We can't twitch our lip and receive medicine. We're dead. We do nothing. Christ does it all. Uh, Have you experienced that? It's by grace alone. It's through Christ alone. It's through faith alone. It's for his glory alone. That's the work of God. It's so good to know that we have a God who wants to do that kind of life-changing work. Now, notice where that takes us. Dead people get changed, and then they become different. Verse 7. He says, let me tell you the reason I'm doing this. Verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Don't miss that verse. This is a purpose clause. He says, the reason I save sinners is because I want the world to see my grace. It really is so amazing. I want to show forth not just grace, but the surpassing riches of this grace. It is unbelievable grace. It's rich to take dead people and make them alive for all eternity and give them a citizenship they could only they couldn't even dream of well god's concern in saving us is a demonstration of his grace are we are we fit to be seen we should be he wants to show forth through us the surpassing riches of his grace people should see grace in you if you have been changed by God. And, you know, a lot of people do. I tell people who, who get saved, I said, you know, th- what do I do now? I said, well, start reading your Bible, start going to church, start uh, showing God your gratitude, give to Him, praise Him, adore Him. And I said, in your home, just, just let people watch that for a while. And I've had the stories come back say, why are you acting so kind? Why, why are you different now? Why, why is it you want to go to church? You never wanted to go to church. Why are you becoming generous? Why are you giving our money away? Why, why is this happening? And what you're doing is you're showing forth 
It's called gratitude. That's all it's called. We call gratitude worship. I'm, I'm, I'm praising. I'm, I'm thanking the God who has changed me and is taking me from my sin into a new dimension, to a, to a holiness I never had before. See what God's done. Um, every person God genuinely saves, and we're living in perhaps the largest country in the world filled with nominal Christians. So this is big for us. People who are Christians in name only. It's not hard for me to get people to agree that they like the term Christian. Yeah, I don't mind being a Christian. But that's not a genuine Christian. And a genuine Christian is someone who always shows forth the surpassing riches of God's grace. So, you know, why do you plant a garden? You plant it for fruit, right? It brings something. Why does God save sinners? For, for the fruit of showing forth the surpassing riches of his grace. So everyone, every time Jesus saves a sinner, a sinner becomes a servant that shows forth grace. And you see that over and over. I, I, I um, sometimes, uh, being, being the pastor, you know, mom and dad, you want to see your kids get saved. And so you have me over at some point and say, you know, pick a name. I, I, ask Sally, they say to me, ask Sally what she did last night. And I've heard that message question enough. I, I already know where this is going. Apparently, Sally is prayed to receive Christ or something, so they want the preacher to hear, you know, so they can join the church and all that, and that's great. And it's a very significant moment, very, very purposeful time. So I, I'm, I, I rejoice in it. And I go to Sally and say, well, Sally, your mom and dad told me something significant happened last night. You know, what was it? You know, Sally tells me the story. And 99% of the time, it's, um, you know, Sally says, well, I, I pray and ask Jesus to come in my heart. Praise the Lord. I, I want to rejoice in that, okay? That's very significant when a child asks Jesus into their heart, their life, however they say it. But the language is lacking, and that's what I want us to talk about for a minute. I prayed. I did something. Ephesians 2 says dead people don't do anything. We don't do anything. So the language, even though it can happen with bad language, many times we're being told, you need to do something. This is your next step, and your next step is a prayer. Your next step is to do something. You need to walk the aisle. You need to be baptized. You need to go to church. You need to give money. You need to, you need to, you need to. That's not the gospel. That means... The good news would be if you had the ability to do something, but you don't have the ability to do anything. You can do nothing. You're a dead man. A better answer would be, I go to little Sally and say, Sally, what did you do last night? And Sally says, well, quite frankly, I did nothing. Then I would jump out of the house. I did nothing. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Helpless look to him for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. 
We do nothing. We're saved to show forth grace. If we do anything, it doesn't show forth grace. And notice, God doesn't want us to obscure grace. Look at verse 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved. So I don't want you to mess this up. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Oh, so you thought your believing was your part. He says, no, no, no. You don't even, the faith is not even your part. Faith is the gift. I give you that too. So yes, you need to believe. Yes, you need to repent. But only after I give you those gifts, those abilities, you do nothing. By grace, you have been saved. Through faith, that not of, and it's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not as a result of works. You don't do anything. How many ways can he say it? So that no one may boast. So when somebody says, hey, tell us your story. Tell us how you came to Christ. If you start with, well, I heard the message, I raised my hand, I walked the aisle, I got baptized, I did this, I did that, I did that. You're boasting in what I did, you did. And the very purpose of genuine salvation is to hear about what God did. He is a life-changing God. He changes us. And that's the good news. Um, You know, and I've heard it over and over here. And I could spend the time maybe going through the room. We could all tell our stories. I remember once we had a preacher preach here. And he wasn't saved. You could tell through his preaching it was all some good stuff. We loved what he had to say. But later on in life, he realizes he was dead in his sins. He couldn't turn from his lust. God saved him. And then he became a real preacher. And it changed everything. We see people like preachers in our culture, that are really good folk. We had a barber come, really good man, but he didn't talk about grace when he came. A therapist who came, really good man, didn't talk about grace when he came. We've had doctor, really good man, doing lots of good stuff, come. Didn't talk about grace when he came. We've had freshmen, college freshmen, say, I'm determined to stay pure as I go through college didn't talk about grace when they went to college. And all of those people and more are right in this room and have been saved and changed, and I listen to them talk now, and they talk about grace. God has changed me. My life is different. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, and now I am different. We call it worship. I want to give to God. I want to praise God. I want to adore God because I am changed by God. That's the good news. Oh, and I love it when it happens to kids. We had so many kids in this church get saved by three. And everybody comes and asks me, preacher, can, can somebody be saved by three? They can barely talk. I said, well, it's happening. And I love it. When it happens, why? Because that kid grows up and then they struggle with their testimony. He says, I, I, my testimony's not 
very dramatic. You know, we hear these testimonies of people who are on drugs and laying in a ditch and cars run over them and then they get saved. And, and, and I can't remember a day without Christ. And I say that is the coolest, best testimony ever because you of all people know you did nothing. Nothing for salvation. You were saved before you even understood it all. So cool. And God does that. And that person goes on to say, yes, you're right. And show forth the surpassing riches of God's grace. Even saying, let the little children come unto me. Let me show you how I can bless them and change them and make them vessels of my grace. Well, one more thing. Verse 10. Not only does he save us, he saves us for grace, he shows us off in verse 10 by saying, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. We will walk in good works. We will do good things. We, we, will, we will live it. I'm sure uh, I didn't hear Mark's sermon yet. I'm sure it's good. A few weeks ago, you were preaching on Acts 1-8, right? Yeah, uh, you shall be my witnesses. See, that's not optional. It will happen. You will be my witness. You shall be, but you will be the light of the earth. You will be the salt of the earth. You will show forth the surpassing riches of his grace. You have been determined. God created you for this purpose, created life in a dead person for the purpose of making you someone who lives, works, breathes, listens to God. This will happen. He says, you are now mine. I purchased you with my own blood. You're mine. You will show forth my grace. You will be a workman. I have work for you to do. It's created for you in your life in Christ. Well, let me just give you a a, a real-life example of that. I remember when I was listening to a, a fellow preach when I was in seminary. He was from Alabama, and he was telling his story. So he's an Alabama man, good southerner. And uh, he was the football captain of high school, tremendous star, got a full college scholarship to play football, went to college, but he went like Newton to send his fill. And the party and lifestyle got him kicked out of school, which was very difficult for the administration to do because you don't want to kick off the reigning quarterback, you know, the, of the team. But he had to kick him out because of all the stuff he got into. So he goes back home to live with his mama uh, in great disgrace. All the, He was the hometown hero in Alabama, and everybody he couldn't believe he got kicked out of school for partying, really? So he comes back home and is so depressed over that circumstance that he literally says he had the gun to his head, he was about to pull the trigger when the telephone rang. This shows you the power of inviting people to church. A friend, a buddy of his, who didn't go to college, who didn't make the scholarship, said, we're having a special service at church. Can you come with me to church? And he's, uh, okay. So he puts the gun down and he goes to church. So if you've got anybody you know that needs to be here, you invite them. Might be this kind of testimony. You don't know how depressed they really are. So he goes to church, he hears the good news of Christ, Christ changes him in that service. And he comes home and he says, 
the sermon, I think, was something on the power of the Holy Spirit, give you self-control and all of that. So he comes home and he tells his mom, a non-Christian, he says, Mom, Jesus Christ changed my life tonight. I'm going to be a different person. I'm not going to be drunk anymore at home. And you know what mom said? Yeah, right. Because she had seen her son all his life be drunk. Yeah, right, like that's going to happen. And he said, no, mom, you're going to see. Jesus changed me. So, you know, it went on for two or three weeks, four weeks, whatever. He, he, he drank, but he didn't get drunk any, ever again. And he finally had to talk with his mom. said, Mama, can you not see Christ? She said, you're cleaning up. You're not drunk. You're kind. You're talking to me. I, said, I see lots of things. You're definitely, something's happened to you, and I'm glad for it, son. She says, but there's no way you're a Christian. And he said, what do you mean? I mean, just think about this. Could have said, well, you're non-Christian. What do you know? But he says, what do you mean? And she says, I know Christians don't smoke, and you smoke like a stack. Well, that, that bothered him. He said, you know, to this point, I haven't read anything against smoking. So he goes to his preacher. He says, I need to get some counsel. So he goes to his preacher, and he asks his preacher, he says, Preacher, Mama says Christians don't smoke. What's the Bible say? And the preacher was very wise, and he said, the preacher said, well, the Bible does not say you shall not smoke. That's not there. The Bible says, as you heard me preach, that you should not have anything that controls your body. You should buffet your body, make it your slave, and not be a slave to other substances. So you, you have to determine... You know, do, do you smoke? Because, you know, you, you, it's, it's like a drink. It's like anything else. Uh, it, it's satisfying something for you. But can you quit it? Can you control it for ministry? Can you control it when you need to? Can you control it in front of your mama? You, you, have you made it your slave? He says, really the question is this, son. He says, you have to decide what's more important. Your mama won to Christ, or you're smoking. He said, okay. So he went back home. He took his cigarettes out of his pocket, his mom's sitting on the couch, puts them on the mantelpiece, and he says, Mama, count the cigarettes left in this pack. She says, why? He says, because they're going to stay right here, the same number, until you come to Christ. And he put them on the mantel cold turkey and he prayed desperately lord give me that kind of control that only the holy spirit can do and four or five weeks later he comes in one night after work and his mama's there on the couch just weeping he says mom what what, what are you crying about she says i need that jesus that you've got she says i've never seen anything like it how he could take a drunk and a smoke-filled son and completely change him see his determination was not that he needed to give up drinking or smoking but he needed to show forth the surpassing riches of god's grace and that's what god used to change the next sinner who was dead that's good news that god changes us has god done such a work in your life that it's clear people around you see a surpassing work of grace.
Let's pray together. Father, we have a God that's life-changing. You're never dull. You're never boring. You don't leave us the same. You grant to us the power and the ability to repent and believe. And that changes everything. We have life instead of death. We have heaven instead of hell. Lord, how can we not worship and adore you? But we also have friends who've not experienced this good news. We've got family there. Lord, we ask that you would show forth your rich grace through us, that we would see more and more overwhelmed with the grace of our life-changing God. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.